crowd of the news cycle these days can be relentless. Let us help you with that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story, Canada's most interesting daily news podcast. Every day, we stop that news cycle in its tracks and examine one big story in depth, something that matters to Canadians. You can find The Big Story every morning for free at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's becoming pretty clear that Canadian provinces and cities are going to spend large chunks of this summer swapping around the title of world's worst air quality. Good evening. We begin again tonight with some of the worst air in the world right here at home. Montreal has the worst air quality among major cities around the world. Toronto's air quality, the worst in the world this afternoon. The latest on the Alberta wildfire story. Now it can be said that they have the worst air quality in the entire world. You get the idea. And you know by now that wildfire smoke is bad for you. Don't go outside in it if you can help it. In general, just... Not good is the message. But how bad is it? What's in it exactly? When people compare it to smelling like a campfire or they say that spending time outdoors is the equivalent of smoking a certain number of cigarettes. What do those comparisons mean and are they accurate? What do we know about the short and long-term effects of this kind of smoke? And crucially, because many of you might be feeling as anxious or depressed as some of us have been when the smoke hangs over our city like a harbinger of the apocalypse. What about the mental health impact that comes with that when soak up some sun turns into close your windows, don't go outside? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is the big story. Dr. Courtney Howard is the vice chair of the Global Climate and Health Alliance. She's also an emergency physician and a board member with the Canadian Medical Association. She joins us from summer vacation with the kids, if you happen to hear them. Hello, Dr. Howard. Hi, thanks for having me. You are most welcome. Thanks for joining us. I understand you're across the pond right now. Can you smell our smoke over there? I can't so far. It's a very nice day here in Oxford. I only ask because I did see reports earlier this week that our smoke was making it um, to parts of the European mainland, which is kind of staggering to me. Yes, we are all interconnected on this earth and smoke can travel very far from the site of origin of the fires. I was just looking at a study that will come out in September that showed a very small increase in mortality here in the UK using a huge data set uh, from wildfire smoke that was released globally. So we do know that the smoke can go very far and that not only the solutions, but uh, the problems associated with the smoke are, are things that we all share. Well, and we wanted to talk to you because obviously the smoke can be terrifying for many reasons. Uh, it can cause anxiety and we can talk about that a little bit later. But I also think there's just been a lot of general coverage of the smoke is bad and it's dangerous and it's harmful to your health. But I haven't seen a lot of in-depth coverage of 
what it's actually doing in our body. And so maybe we can just start with what is actually in wildfire smoke besides smoke? It's a good question. And it depends on exactly what burned. So you can imagine that if it is a certain type of wood or forest versus, unfortunately, a wildfire that has spread into residential dwelling areas or other uh, built structures, that what ends up being part of the smoke is a different uh, sort of mix of particles of combustion. And that's one of the reasons why the evidence based on air pollution that is associated with wildfire smoke can't be completely put in overlap with the evidence based on air pollution from fossil fuel related air pollution that we get from traffic and other kinds of energy generation. And so it just really depends. I think of it as a toxic mixture of various products of combustion. When we say toxic mixture, what is in that mixture that is actively harmful to humans? Well, the part that we have so far defined as the most harmful part of the smoke, so it's the variable that is most often tracked in studies is called PM2.5. So that is particulate matter. Uh, That's the PM part that is less than 2.5 microns per meter cubed. So that doesn't discriminate based on substance. So it could be anything. It's just telling us that it's smaller, something that could fit through that type of a grid, something teensy tiny. And the reason they're problematic is that they're so small that they can go not only all the way down into our respiratory uh, passageways and into our alveoli, but they can actually cross into our blood. And so once they're there, they initiate an inflammatory cascade. And what that looks like is kind of the branches of a tree. You have uh, the particle going down into the lungs and it hits and activates a given um, mediator chemical And then that mediator chemical activates several other ones and each one of those activate other ones. And so you end up with this tremendously complex activation of our immune system as a result of the smoke. And that's why we see effects very far from just where our respiratory passages are, like heart attacks increasing. Uh, Sometimes some of the studies have shown a potential increase in preterm birth and other types of uh, trouble concentrating. And so we're really only at the point where we are really able to say for sure that we're having major acute short-term problems in all of these areas. And we're still looking into what the long-term impacts of all of these uh, smoke and inflammatory cascades are. I'll get to some more on the symptoms in just a little bit, but it's my job here to ask basic questions. And one of the things I've heard and that I think a lot of people who have experienced the smoke anywhere in Canada or the world uh, would say is that it smells almost like campfire smoke. And certainly that's the, the smell that sticks on your clothes afterwards. Is this different than campfire smoke and how so? It depends on where you're experiencing it. So if you're right next to a big fire, you are getting an exposure that would be very similar to campfire smoke. Uh, You'll have some of the bigger particles. You'll smell more of the odor as well as having the the little tiny particles. If you're farther away, the big particles, those sort of floaty bits that you see when you're sitting next to a campfire that are big enough that you move out of the way, 
they've already precipitated out, fallen out of the sky somewhere else. I remember when we had a lot of this in Yellowknife or close to Yellowknife, we would wake up and find all sorts of white bits on our deck. And if you happen to have a kiddie pool, they'd be floating in the kiddie pool. And we certainly don't see those farther away because they've already fallen out of the sky. And so if you're further away, that's when you're really um, getting more of just the ultrafine particles. Does that mean that sitting right next to a campfire is less bad for you than being far away from a forest fire and getting those particles? Or are they are they comparable? And if so, why why are we spending our nights sitting around campfires breathing in this stuff? Well, that's a good question. And there are certainly parts of Canada and parts of the UK that, for instance, have banned at home fires and fireplaces. And so that's one of the reasons um, I, I sometimes get people contacting me on Twitter and saying, hey, you know, you talk a lot about air pollution. How come you're not also talking about the smoke that comes out of our, our wood burning fires? And it, that it becomes a bit of a complicated question depending on, you know, exactly what type of a wood burning fire you have at home, because some of them have quite good ability to burn things through a second time and really decrease the amount of particulate matter. And then, of course, it all depends on how many you have in a given area and how how well ventilated that part of uh, the country is in terms of whether or not it's sort of on a flat prairie and the wind is blowing through versus being in a valley between mountains. And so there is a bit of an ongoing debate around wood fire smoke burned in a house. When we talk about being camping, most of us don't go camping for that many days in a given year. And so, yes, you may be there, but also it's in the open air. Most of the time when the smoke is blowing towards anyone around the campfire, if you're camping, you, you move out of the way. And so I think we all instinctively know that it doesn't feel super good to be breathing in uh, the campfire smoke. But I think that the reason we don't talk about that that much is because it uh, doesn't tend to be very long exposures for most of us over the course of a summer. The other thing that gets constantly compared uh, to the damage this wildfire smoke can cause is smoking cigarettes. What do we know about how those two things compare and how accurate that comparison is? There are people who have made that comparison. Again, you would get particulate matter less than 2.5 microns um, by breathing in cigarette smoke. There, you're going to have more tarry products of combustion there as compared to most wildfire related uh, events. It also uh, causes, as we know, um, lots of increased reactive airway disease is associated on a long-term basis anyway with uh, heart attacks. So neither one of them are very good for our health. And when it comes to wildfire smoke, it's important to know that there's actually no safe level of exposure to PM 2.5. So our public health guidance is based on what has been determined to be kind of a good sense type of balance between our physical effects and, you know, the, the necessity we all have to get out and do our work outside and get groceries, etc. But there really is no safe level of exposure. The news cycle these days can be relentless. Let us help you with that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story, Canada's most interesting daily news podcast. Every day, we stop that news cycle in its tracks and examine one big story in depth. 
something that matters to Canadians. You can find The Big Story every morning for free at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency. In terms of symptoms that result from exposure, and here I'm talking about short-term symptoms, I know the majority of them that lots of people report are, you know, coughs, sore throat, inhaling issues, and that kind of stuff. But I've also seen and heard people report all sorts of symptoms from like nausea to upset stomachs to headaches. Can that all be caused by wildfire smoke? And how broad are these symptoms? Yes, there's a a set of symptoms that people tend to manage on their own at home. So they don't get tracked as often in the studies that are looking at measures of health system utilization. So those are a lot of what you've described. So people will describe itchy, watery eyes, their noses will start to run. Some people get headaches when they smell smoke. Some people do start to feel a bit nauseous when they're they're breathing it at home. And most people, though, will not come to the emergency department for those issues. They'll sort of close their eyes, take an Advil and, and have a nap and stay at home. The ones that we see coming to medical to seek medical care are many times people who have a tendency towards asthma, but maybe are usually okay without medication or on a low level of medications will often notice after a little while that they're coughing more and they're feeling short of breath. So that was one of the reasons why we did the study in Yellowknife was that I had a lot of people with asthma coming in to ask for more puffers. And many of them had sort of tried their best to get along at home for a couple of weeks. So by the time they got in, their their lungs were quite inflamed. And many of them needed to stay in the emergency department for a number of hours until the steroids that we gave them orally kicked in uh, enough to decrease the inflammation. So it was a notable enough difference from the way people with asthma usually react when they come in. Usually we give them a couple of puffers, they feel way better and and we send them home that we decided to do the study. And so we ended up actually showing a full doubling of emergency department visits for asthma, as well as a 50% increase in pneumonia. And that was over a two and a half month exposure that we had. So you can imagine we're a pretty small population to show a doubling of visits for asthma is a big effect. We also found that our pharmacies were prescribing quite a bit more uh, salbutamol. And in fact, one of them actually ran out of salbutamol over the course of the summer, which made us realize that given that wildfires are becoming more predictable, we need to start treating them as predictable. So we've been recommending since that if people have asthma, that they get their their puffers refilled before heading into the summer and that wildfire Summers are a time for pharmacies to stock up on those breathing medicines beforehand. Big studies have also been shown. uh, Sarah Henderson and her colleagues last year showed an increase in cardiac events, so heart attacks during wildfire periods as a result of acute exposure as well as death from cardiovascular disease. We have seen lots of studies show increased visits for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. We have very few studies looking at the long-term effects of wildfire smoke, which makes it a little bit difficult for all of us to make decisions. It will be better when those studies come out. There is one that looked at prenatal exposure to wildfire smoke in 1997 in Indonesia, and they found that that actually led to a very small decrease in height for age at age 17 in children who were exposed prenatally 
So we haven't seen that replicated in another study, but it's something to think about. It's one of the reasons why we recommend that pregnant women be treated as a vulnerable population and really try to avoid the smoke. There was another study out of Brazil that showed an increased risk for preterm birth. So again, uh, definitely our uh, pregnant uh, community members would be best to stay inside. And in terms of exposures for little ones, we had a lot of uh, the asthma-related visits uh, were in children in Yellowknife, and that's pretty common. And in terms of this question that we all had, very much something I have wondered as a mother that in fact led me to do the study was, you know, what is the smoke doing to our kids? So we're really going from a long-term basis on studies done in rhesus monkeys. So there was a group of rhesus monkeys that were exposed to wildfire smoke as infants in California, and they actually had reduced lung function all the way through adolescence. So there's a possibility that some of these increased inflammation elements as well as uh, other parts of the exposures could actually potentially lead to changed lung function many years after the wildfire smoke. And so very important that we stay inside with the windows closed, uh, have HEPA filters if we can, and uh, do what we can to entertain our children inside in the summer when it's smoky, even though I know that that is very, very difficult. So we've covered acute symptoms and and there might not be much in the way of long-term research on this yet. But I also wanted to ask you about the mental impacts. I know a lot of people have talked about, you know, quote unquote, it feels like the apocalypse. Obviously, it makes thoughts of climate change inescapable. I know I feel very strange walking outside with my daughter into this, being like, this is the summer for the rest of your life. How are we coping with that? Yeah, and those are very similar sentiments to what we heard when we asked community members in Yellowknife, as well as Yellowknife's Dene and the Kagatu First Nation, how they felt after our summer of smoke in uh, 2014. So we did 30 community-based interviews. And when we did a qualitative analysis afterwards, the themes were very much around feeling anxious and irritable from the experience of staying inside the cabin fever feeling. People, of course, also had a decreased uh, physical activity. And so what that meant was everybody lost the treatment benefit of exercise, which we know also decreases depression and anxiety. Many people rely on it from a data, on a day-to-day basis to help regulate mood. So it was a bit of a double, double whammy. People felt disconnected from the land. So they described a real loss around really valued summer activities like fishing and gardening and going out onto the land to pick berries. When you think about that, it's very multifaceted in terms of the value that that provides to our life. There is a food security element to it. There's a nature therapy element to it. And we, of course, know that a two-hour dose of nature every week leads to enhanced feelings of well-being. It's a very important part of sort of a a life well-lived. And it also really has culturally significant impacts on our well-being. You know, there's Things that we do every year, every summer that are a ritual for us and they become part of our family culture and our community culture. And so when we can't experience those, it's a really complex and important set of losses. And people talked to us a lot about those. There was also a feeling many people said something like, 
if it's this bad now, what does it mean for our kids? And so when I think about that in the context of other work on eco-anxiety and ecological grief, for many people, it was a sentinel event in their understanding of what climate change meant for them and their family. And as a doctor, there is really nothing I do that's more difficult than relaying difficult news. So when I take an x-ray and I look at it and I think, oh dear, you know, I, I'm going to have to send this person for further testing. I'm worried they might have tuberculosis or lung cancer. And I go into that room, take a big breath before I go into that room. I make sure I'm emotionally centered because I know that when I express that to them and I relay that to people, I get ex- I can have a really big range of normal human reactions to difficult news. And so sometimes people ask me tons of questions. They just have so many questions. We sit there for as long as I possibly can and answer questions. Sometimes people clam right up and leave. Sometimes people say thank you. Sometimes people get really angry. Sometimes people laugh. Sometimes people cry. And those are all totally normal human reactions to bad news. And we all tend to react somewhat differently and it tends to hit us differently. And so there's a lot of factors that play into how we all react to a new awareness of a changed future. And I think that we need to be really compassionate for both ourselves and everyone else in our community and recognizing that that's essentially what's happening now. You know, we know, according to the Canada's Changing Climate Report that Environment and Climate Change Canada produced a couple of years ago, that Canada is going to keep warming under all feasible emission scenarios until mid-century. So by mid-century, they estimated that Canada, because it's warming at double the global rate, will be 1.8 degrees Celsius warmer than it was at a new baseline that they drew between 1986 and 2005. And so, you know, we we can change our forest management practices. We can do much in terms of uh, preparing our built infrastructure and creating clean air shelters for ourselves and coming up with different strategies to get ourselves and our communities through these summers of smoke in a way that enhances well-being. But it's still hard to know that that's what's coming. And I have certainly spent time as a mother in various waves over the course of my life, because I've lived in the far north for over a decade, we're warming at triple the global rate. And so these effects are hitting us earlier and in some case more severely. So we've had more time to process it. But when wildfire season rolls out, I I tend to spend a uh, not small amount of time (laughs) laying on my belly in the sun and just giving myself time to let my energy stocks kind of replenish so that I can deal productively with these situations. Usually one of my kids comes and lays on top of me and kind of wiggles and then like makes me laugh at that point. So if you're feeling really low in terms of your energy, give yourself time, play with your kids, let yourself, you know, don't answer your emails for a little while if you can manage that exercise inside your house if you can. That's really important for well-being. It's really easy to end up finding yourself coping with caffeine and alcohol. Those are both false solutions because they both mess with your sleep and your ability to be emotionally centered. So I tend to talk with people sometimes about being a, a coping Olympian. So if you're aiming to be a coping Olympian, we still don't know how long the summer of smoke is going to be. Really, this is about giving yourself a mandatory eight-hour sleep opportunity every day, 
minimizing your screen time, minimizing your caffeine, minimizing your alcohol, making sure that you take time with your kids and you exercise every day. And that when the air is clear, you put those windows open, you air out your house because that smoke will have seeped in and you go out, you get your dose of nature, you get some exercise, you see your community. And so if we're really conscious about those types of things, we can get through these periods and help ourselves through that diagnosis of climate change. But just recognizing that that's a really normal reaction to what is a acute threat. And so doing the work required to decrease the threat. So that has to do both with adaptation, but it also has to do with mitigation. We need to emergently decrease greenhouse gas emissions and we need to make it very clear to our elected representatives that an adequate plan requires Canada to actually hit our greenhouse gas emissions targets and transition to a a clean economy because otherwise we're all going to have this feeling hanging over us that, gee, like we're not actually on the path to safety here. And that's going to really impact our children more than us. And that's something that I find most parents um, really can't sit with, with any kind of comfort because one of our main jobs is to protect our children. So there's the in the moment sort of how do we take care of ourselves and get ourselves into a strategic position. There's the let's do what we can to feel better now in terms of practical adaptation measures. And then let's transition Canada to a place where we can feel good about the way we're living and the kind of world we're handing over to our kids. Dr. Howard, thank you so much for this. I wish uh, it was a happier discussion, but I really appreciate the tips about how to grapple with this mentally. Well, you know, I I appreciate that. And something I'd really say is don't try to do it alone because for a long time, we were kind of sold this idea that it was our job as individuals to solve this. This requires systems level change and adaptation is all about community. It's all about knowing who your neighbors are, helping to take care of one another, making sure that the recreation center is open for free for everybody so that we can have a clean air shelter when it's smoky and we can go in and exercise, et cetera, and see one another. And mitigation is all about making sure that we make our policies so it's just easier and cheaper to transition to a low carbon way of living that still gives people clean jobs. There's tons of studies that actually show that there's going to be more clean jobs uh, gained than fossil fuel related jobs lost. And so let's put our public money and our public policies towards that. We're all going to feel better when we do. Dr. Courtney Howard, Vice Chair of the Global Climate and Health Alliance. That was The Big Story, another in our ongoing series about fires and smoke and climate and the apocalypse. But hey, you need to arm yourself with information. And listen, we're here to help you do that. And if you're anything like me, sometimes learning about this stuff can help you ease those anxieties. I mean, at least you know what you're in for. Plan for the worst, hope for the best, right? Oh, man. Anyway, it's Friday. It's a long weekend. It's Canada Day. I hope wherever you are is smoke-free, and I hope you can be outside. I hope you can get some sun, and I hope you can listen to other episodes of The Big Story, which are available at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Share your coping strategies for the smoke if you got them. You can also write to us, hello, at thebigstorypodcast.ca, or call us up, share tips, or just vent, or cry softly into the phone. Whatever gets you through the day, we are here for you. You can get this podcast anywhere you get them. If they let you, toss us a rating, toss us a review, 
Toss a link to the show to a friend and tell them to subscribe for free. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a wonderful long weekend. We'll be back on Tuesday.